0: Welcome to the Hindu Parley. Uh, My name is A.M. Jigish and I am the host for this week's Parley. Is higher education in India out of touch with the skill requirements in the job markets? This is the question we are going to discuss in this episode students who enrolled during the pandemic have graduated and there are widespread concerns over the employability or, and the quality of online education there are also concerns about the focus of the new education policy that is the national education policy of 2020 which according to its critics creates further hurdles for students from poor and marginalized backgrounds in accessing higher education the unemployment rate among the graduates are also remain high to discuss this issue, we have two eminent academics today. Both are experts in the domain of higher education and its contribution to create a better society. I welcome Professor Fukan Kamar and Professor Santosh Mehrotra to this program. Professor Kamar teaches management at Jamia Millia Islamia and Professor Mehrotra is with the Jawaharlal Nahru University. Both the professors have helped policymakers at central and state level to draft policies on accessible higher education and improving the skill sets of students. Apart from excelling in their fields of academics, both have contributed in shaping public debates through their articles in mainstream newspapers and magazines on the issue of higher education and labor and development economics. I welcome both of them again. Let us start the discussion by asking a question to Professor Maharatra, Professor. Coming to this issue of employability, students uh, who studied during the pandemic have graduated and are in search of jobs. There are several reports, private reports by by private agencies that suggest that there's an increase in employability, though largely the percentage of graduates who are employable is estimated around 45%. So according to you, what is the current trend in this aspect? And has online learning impacted uh, uh, the employability?
1: Well, there was a problem with uh, employability well before this craze for online learning took off. I'll come back to the online learning issue in a minute, but I think your listeners need to understand that the unemployment rates have increased very sharply even before the E-commerce and online learning and ed tech boom took place in the last three years during COVID. You see, let's just look at the unemployment rates for 15 to 29-year-olds, according to the National Sample Survey Organization, which is the government's own organization. Because this 45% employability number that you were citing is from VBOX, uh, the India Skill Report, the uh, last one. That's not an official report, so I'm going to start by talking about the government's own. Now, what's important for your listeners to understand is that those who have acquired or are acquiring higher education are those who belong to at least the top 20-30% of the income distribution, so relatively well off. Uh, because the vast majority of our countrymen, country's youth, actually don't even manage to enter uh, higher education because higher education enrollment rates are still, uh, according to the government statistics, about 27% of the relevant age group, which is 18 to 23. So, you know, the, in 2012, the unemployment rate for graduates used to be 20%. But it shot up to 34% in 2021. And for postgraduates, it used to be in 2012, 18% and it doubled to nearly 37% uh, in 2021. Similarly, for tech graduates, I mean, no, sorry, tech education below graduate, their unemployment rate used to be 18%. It went up to 28%. And those who are you know, technical education graduates, uh, full graduates, it went from 20% to 35%. What is this? What am I saying to you? That long before the e-commerce, ed tech um, boom happened, the problems with our higher education systems system is so structural that, you know, employability clearly was already a concern. You see, a major reason for this happening was there was a massification between 2006 and 2017-18 of higher education. And because of this massification, the number of private colleges grew and quality deteriorated. State government, central government, UGC just didn't have the capacity to regulate. So these in, uh, universities just became uh, exam-giving uh, institutions. So this is the history of, But, you know, online education is an additional problem which perhaps Professor Kamar can speak about now. Professor Kamar, so
0: what is your understanding of this issue? Like, uh, as Professor Mehrotra pointed out, has online learning created any issues in uh, this issue of uh, employability, this matter of employability among uh, young graduates?
2: Jigesh, coming to the... Unemployability issue in higher education, I think Professor Merotra has very clearly pointed out that graduate unemployment rate or educated unemployment rate is way higher than the average unemployment rate on usually status basis. So based on this, we can conclude that yes, educated people are not getting jobs and therefore unemployment is an issue. But I would like to bring in that if unemployed are not, if graduates are not getting jobs in India, that could also be because economy is not creating enough jobs to absorb the graduates coming out of the system, and that is the reason that so many graduates, so many people are leaving the country in search of better opportunities and higher fortunes
1: mm-hmm. abroad.
2: So this is one thing. Now, coming to online education and its implication on learning and therefore their employability, I teach in a business school and what I found was that those batches which graduated out of Corona, somehow the placement was very high. This year, the placement is declining. But in general, what we find is that online learning did cause learning losses. We meet a student who say that uh, we missed a lot and it was a challenge to concentrate for long hours on screen and therefore learning. So there were, I wouldn't say compromises, serious compromises, but yes, there were learning deficiencies and that has affected uh, the abilities of the students to acquire knowledge and to demonstrate and to become better employable. And this is happening this year, uh, that uh, all those online companies, edtech companies that have come down, they are uh, retrenching their staff and uh, uh, they are downsizing themselves because the students themselves are not uh, preferring those kinds of education because they themselves realize that it is not going to serve their purpose. And therefore... In person mode education, physical mode, being in the classroom, being amongst the pair, is being preferred. So, to conclude, I would say that yes, online learning did affect learning losses. Unemployability in general of the educated people is higher. It could be because of the uh, deficiencies in the higher education system, but it is also because of the fact that economy is not creating adequate numbers of jobs to absorb these people who are coming out of the system. So, I uh, Professor Kama,
0: I will come to this uh, issue of uh, market demand. So, like you just mentioned, the economy is not creating adequate jobs. So, what exactly is the kind of demand of the market now in terms of skilled employment? Uh, You can talk about globally and domestically. I mean, in our country, agriculture, all these reports, even the economic survey pointed out that agriculture is still the largest employment-providing sector uh, and the share of manufacturing sector is alarmingly coming down year by year uh, to cre- in, in, in the issue of creating jobs. So, how skill enhancement using institutions of higher learning can bring changes in these primary sectors? What is your view on this, Professor Kama? So, Jagish, uh
2: Agriculture in India remains largely conventional. There is little scope for educated people joining agriculture as a profession when their land holdings are very small. Agriculture-related services, agriculture-related uh, products, just yes, graduates uh, might be joining. So agriculture has not become high-tech, so I don't see a lot of possibilities. Of uh, mainstream graduates joining the agricultural professions, even in the services sector, the kind of uh, jobs that are being created in the services sector few are at the high end, requiring higher knowledge amongst the students. But most other jobs, like delivery boys and uh, bike riders and zomato and I mean uh, these kinds of jobs. I think these are not the preferred job for the educated people, although because in the absence of any other job, they might be doing those jobs, but they are not happy about uh, those kinds of jobs. Now, uh, about the skilling part, the knowledge, skill, application, these are the three dimensions. Now, higher education institutions are essentially knowledge institutions or should essentially be the knowledge institution meaning they should be focusing on dissemination of knowledge, but more so on creation of new knowledge. And when higher education institutions create new knowledge that leads to uh, uh, development of new technologies, uh, uh, possibilities of new businesses, so innovation, entrepreneurship, startups, they all emanate out of that knowledge creation. So when these Make higher education institutions to focus on lower level skills, how to become stenographers, how to become secretaries, how to become bread makers, how to make waters. Now, neither higher education institutions are equipped for to discharge those kinds of skills. I think polytechnics and ITIs would be better suited, so they can't do that job better. Uh, and it will also distract themselves from their core purpose of teaching and research at the higher level so i think these are the challenges so primary sector manufacturing sector yes in the innovation in the uh, research and development yes higher education should be useful uh, by providing new technologies by developing new ways and new processes But uh, doing, uh, say, jobs in the agriculture sector, particularly so long as it remains conventional with low land holdings, uh, I don't see a job prospect for the graduates. Okay. Uh,
0: uh, Professor Mehrotra, what about the gender aspect uh, in in this issue? Like, I mean, uh, as uh, some uh, reports also suggested that the employability among educated women um, were higher than that of men. So, like, All these primary sectors, I mean, if you see like the women's participation uh, in jobs, it's alarmingly uh, low uh, in this country. Even international agencies like ILO had raised certain concerns about uh, women workers' participation rate in the country. So uh, does it have anything to do uh, with the skill enhancement and uh, opportunities of education for women in this country, sir?
1: Uh, Indeed, it does. So let me deal with your uh, gender issue first, and then I will move back up to some very important points made by Professor Kumar, Kumar and, and I will deal with those as well and add a few points. You're absolutely spot on when you say that female labor force participation in our country is among the lowest in the world. It's actually as low as what you would find in Yemen and Saudi Arabia which makes us really at the bottom of the pile and it in fact it has been falling and yet at the same time let's remember that girls uh, are getting better educated you know we managed to ensure gender parity at secondary level very rapidly which is uh, which is unusual for our level of per capita income uh, you know between 2010 and 2015 uh, we sort of went from 58% secondary enrollment to 80 85% secondary enrollment with gender parity so and that had that led to upward pressure in higher secondary as well as in higher education so more and more women got better educated and their aspirations across across even the hindi belt the northern belt of the country and their aspirations are not to get married immediately they want to get married later not around 18 to 20, but, you know, after that. But what are they going to do Do if jobs are not growing? So one very important reason why India's overall labor force participation rate is so low compared to the world average. The world average is uh, of total work participation is around 60 percent in India. Total is around 40% and uh, most of this is accounted for by women. And in COVID, of course, they lost the jobs first. So so much for this, but I think let's go back to the economic growth issue because ultimately both of you have rightly pointed to the issue of economic growth having slowed down. Let's remember between 2004 and fourteen the growth rate of the economy was 8%. It came down to uh, 5.7% in the last nine years. As a result, new non-farm jobs did not uh, grow at the same rate as they were growing earlier. Now, having said that, the only way we are going to increase the number of jobs is if we improve the growth rate. But there are many other things that need to happen in the area of jobs for relatively low-skilled people, but I think your your interest is not so much in that. Your interest is in new job, the higher education. So let me focus on that. There are structural problems with the higher education sector, and I want to mention two or three. In respect of the generation of new knowledge that Professor Kamar was talking about, let's recall what are the institutions which are responsible for this In our country, you see our R&D expenditure as a proportion of GDP is only 0.7%. And this share has not increased over the last two decades. By contrast, in Korea, R&D expenditure as a proportion of GDP is 4%. In China, it is over 2%. So one problem is low R&D expenditure as a proportion of GDP. second big problem in our country so i mean how do how does new knowledge get created this is one issue the second issue is that uh, globally we know that the private corporate sector accounts for about 70% of total r&d expenditure and only 30% comes from the government in our country this ratio is the exact opposite in india public sector accounts for some 70% of total r&d expenditure and the private sector is very, very relatively smaller now implication of this that private sector jobs in research are, are not growing the third issue here is that unlike in the rest of the world where most research gets take, uh, you know takes place in universities and there is linkage between industry and universities in our country a very small proportion of the public funding goes for research within universities most of our funding for research from government sources goes to the council for scientific and industrial research uh, to ICMR etc Uh, now this is highly problematic because these public institutions public research institutions don't have any mechanism of translating their research output which is quite significant to Actual usable products and processes which can help you and I, ordinary people. And this difference is a very stark difference. So, first we spend too little, then we don't have the institutions which can convert our new knowledge or research into usable processes. And and, and, and. so, you know, the only way we are going to solve this problem is that either the CSIR type of institutions which receive a lot of funding get Uh, you know create the institutions that convert their patents or research scientific research papers into products and processes and if this that's not to happen then universities have to be funded more in terms of research so no new knowledge is created but industry will have to be associated with this so you can see from but you know there is one final thing that i'll close with which is that Unfortunately, our country still doesn't have an industrial policy or a manufacturing strategy. Most of our uh, young, educated researchers are getting absorbed, if they go to industry at all, into high-value services. So, you know, there are 800 multinationals which have set up their global hubs for research here. Now, young people are getting absorbed there who are researchers. But all that, the value of that research... No flows abroad. It's no use for our country. You can understand from this that jobs are not, in, not getting created on the scale that we need to by, in the process of generating new knowledge. Professor, Kama, uh, Professor Mehrotra pointed
0: towards the need of uh, I mean clear policies to address uh, these issues in education, higher education and labor. So uh, this is the fourth year of uh, the new uh, national education policy. Uh, The NEP promised a lot of uh, integration of skills and traditional syllabi and curriculums. So, how do you assess uh, the impact of NEP uh, in in fulfilling uh, these uh, requirements? How do you assess? This is the fourth year.
2: So, yes, Jigesh, this is the fourth year of the National Education Policy 2020. And in July, we will be celebrating the fourth uh, anniversary of the policy. This policy has I mean, depending on the perspective of people, some would say that this is the best thing that has happened, but that there are equally large number of people who have their own uh, reservations about this policy. Now, uh, the policy is one thing, but the way the policy is implemented is another thing. So coming uh, to national education policy, as far as higher education is concerned, I find that there are many things which are. Good. So multidisciplinarity, uh, holistic education, uh, I mean, giving people choices and freedom to study whatever courses they want to study, multiple entry and multiple exits. These are all some progressive steps, but the way it has been implemented, I think there is a problem in a few pieces i have written that the first of all the selective implementation of the policy is a problem that you pick and choose and then you implement and then you leave the rest unimplemented or uh, not having any discussion on that second one is that now whatever is happening is happening in the name of the policy while the policy may be providing altogether a different thing. And as a result, so far, we have not seen any substantive and significant change uh, in the education system on the ground. On the other hand, in the name of policy, what has happened that it has led to uh, number one, controversies and confusions about the education and what should higher education institutions do. So I think we need to think about, let me come and give some concrete examples. The national education policy had said that no reform in higher education is possible until the regulatory structure and the regulatory framework is changed. And it is not only that this policy did so, uh, right from 2007, the National Knowledge Commission and Administrative Reforms Commission and many other committees also had suggested this. Now, we had expected that this policy had provided for setting up of Higher Education Commission of India with four verticals, and in one vertical, at least, there would be some consultative mechanism, but that has not happened. So the existing regulatory bodies are trying to bring in something new. And when they are doing so, they are unmindful of resource requirement they are unmindful of the ground realities. for example uh, now we have made that okay undergraduate program would be of four year durations that will add 20 percent more students in the higher education system and when you add 20 percent more higher education students in the system you have a corresponding increase in the uh, requirement of faculty, requirement of physical infrastructure, the research infrastructure, the library and the lab facilities, and nobody is talking about those fundings and those requirements. So policy is good, but the way the policy is being implemented, take another example. The policy very clearly said that there should be a common basis for admitting students. It also mentioned that, okay, the national testing agency exists, and they would hopefully uh, have these systems and processes that people may want to use their score as a basis for selecting a student. But then the policy underscored that the decision whether to use those scores or not would be left solely to individual higher education research institutions. So that is a very good articulation for as far as autonomy of higher education is concerned. But then what we saw was that the central uh, university education test was introduced. Then it became a central educational test. Then we started talking about one nation, one examination. So the higher education system is quite confused about this. So these are the challenges in the national education policy. Now, let me link this with uh, the first question that you raised to Professor Barotra about the gender equity. Now, let me uh, take it largely that, yes, in higher education, the gender parity index is almost close to one. But still, there are disciplinary differences. So in engineering or in more of the job-oriented courses, women are lower in numbers than boys. But on the whole, on an average, women are more. But take it to the larger issue of the social group equity, that uh, are people belonging to scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, Muslim minorities, they are participating in higher education and what has been done in the national education policy. So we know that, yes, uh, scheduled caste and scheduled tribe They are now almost close to as much as the reservation provides, but they are still far lower as compared to their share in the population in the country. The case with Muslim minorities is the same. I mean, they account for not more than 5% in the higher education sector. Their gross enrollment ratio is low. And last year, when the AISHA data came, it was a... Shocking news that the number of Muslim students in higher education in absolute terms had declined substantially. Now, in terms of the policy formulation, the policy doesn't talk about specific equity actions which need to be taken. What they have done is that they have created one umbrella category called socioeconomically underdeveloped uh, groups. SEDG. Now, that group is so wide, so wide that it covers almost 80 to 82% of the total population of this country. It includes women, scheduled caste, scheduled tribe, OBC, uh, physically and mentally uh, challenged people, uh, the poor, uh, and so on and so forth. Now, the intervention strategies for promoting inclusiveness and equity for different sets of people are different. So the approach so far has been that, okay, those who are historically deprived, you need one strategy. Those who are deprived of higher education because they are unable to afford, you need it to create economic affordability. So strategies were different. For women, there were some hesitancy in the family, so you needed one strategy. So I think the policy is quite short on this idea and on this issue of equity. Coming to quality dimension, because quality has become global, uh, the benchmarks have become global, and we need to provide quality higher education. And quality is a function of massive investments, largely the public investments. And what we are finding is that there have only been a lip service that the policy uh, uh, did mention that, okay, we will try to have this 6% of the GDP invested in education. But during the past four years, if you look at the budget, there has been no increase in the uh, investment, public investment in higher education. Even the National Research Foundation, uh, which uh, was looked uh, up to, that okay it will promote research and development expenditure. finally it came out that we will be adding only a minuscule uh, sum than what we were spending so far because now it will take over SERB, etc so uh, the NF investment is not coming so this is one thing so we need to um, enhance our investment in higher education significantly second thing is that faculty is an important issue Without faculty, uh, the quality is not likely to come. Technology cannot be a substitute to teacher. And one example that we can cite that the world-class universities, despite the fact that they have integrated technology far more and far better than we have done, they are still targeting to increase the number of teachers in their institutions. So they do realize that faculty is important. And as we discussed that this online teaching has its own limitation. It can be a good addition, it could be a good complementary resource to promote some quality learning, but then stand alone, it cannot substitute the main stream kind of uh, teaching learning process that we have been used to so far. Yes. Uh, Professor, uh, uh, Professor Kamar has been uh,
0: pointing again uh, towards this issue of inequality in uh, higher education. So, like uh, we have uh, even parliamentary standing committee reports, I mean, warning about the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, uh, and uh, the privileged and marginalized communities uh, in accessing uh, quality education. So, our industrial training institutes and our polytechnic colleges uh, were helping uh, the poor and marginalized students to learn some skills and uh, hit the jobs market. So, uh, according to you, how are our ITIs and polytechnics are now placed uh, to address uh, this issue of uh, inequality in skilled employability? Professor Behrutra?
1: ITIs have grown in number just as, you know, affiliated colleges have grown in number at a phenomenal rate. So, for instance, in the year 2007, uh, when I was in the planning commission, the number of industrial training institutes in the private sector was under 2,000. It is today 13,000. In other words, over a matter of about Twelve or fifteen years, the number has shot up. Now, when you get this level of massification, again the issue of quality arises. You know, how do you regulate the kind of institutions that have grown at this and uh, at, at this rate? So, unfortunately, the quality that is being churned out from the ITIs, and they are the only institutions in the skills ecosystem. Which offer one to two years training. The rest of the institutions that have been created by the government only offer short term training. And this brings me back to the uh, new education policy of BET, uh, which sort of makes and, uh, you know, exhorts the country to go from the current level of 27% of the relevant age cohort, GER, gross enrollment ratio at higher education, at 27% to 50% in a matter of another 12 years, meaning by 2035, we should have reached 50% enrollment. Now, knowing as we do that the government has not increased allocations, as Professor Kamar-Rai pointed out, if anything, as a proportion of GDP, far from going to 6% of GDP as exhorted by the NEP, Uh, The current expenditure on education as a whole, center and states taken together as as a proportion uh, has come down. Let me give you some data. So, for instance, uh, under the UPA, it used to be on average about 4% of GDP on education, center and states together. It is now 2.9%. At the same time, you know, which underlines the point that Professor Kamar was making how much, how important it is to increase allocation, which at the same time, the number of colleges affiliated to universities went from around 10,000 about 20 years ago to 42,000 currently. Now, when you get this level of massification, which is why, you know, your enrollment went, went from 11% to 27%, you've already seen a dramatic decline in educational quality in the higher education level. So, you know, to now make the, uh, the goal... in the next 12 to 13 years is a bizarre goal. I have an alternative, which would be that you divert students at the end of class 10 and class 12 away from higher education towards more ITIs, but better quality ITIs, more vocational institutions, but better vocational training institutions from the private sector. But how are you going to improve quality in the ITIs and and the other vocational training providers? By engaging with industry and employers must be part of this. It cannot be uh, a government-driven, government-financed, government-managed program because then skill development becomes a uh, supply-driven program when successful countries around the globe have provided skills to its youth only through demand driven, employer driven, and employer financed skill development institutions. I mean, there is a way of financing this, but I think your time doesn't allow us to discuss that. So clearly, long and short, you know, divert away from higher education towards more skill development, but quality skill development supported by employers and industry. Thank you. Thank you, Professor
0: Kamar and thank you, Professor Mehrotra, for such an engaging discussion. So I hope uh, the policymakers at both the central and state level uh, take a note of uh, these issues and these concerns and these valuable inputs uh, raised by uh, both the professors on this uh, issue of uh, higher education and its its, uh, contribution towards skill enhancing of uh, our youth. India uh, has one of the largest uh, population of young youngsters. So, uh, I hope the governments both at the central and uh, state levels will take note of this discussion. Thank you, uh, Professor Mehrotra. Thank you, Professor Kamar, for participating in this discussion. Thank you.
2: Jigesh, is the time permitting you? I just need 50 seconds.
0: Please, please, sir. Please. Uh-huh.
2: On this issue of raising GER from 27% to 50%, I did some simulation and some exercises, and I found that with the normal rate of growth in enrollment, it would be very easy to achieve uh, this 50% GER maximum by 2038. So this is one thing. So I would say that this is not some very major accomplishment, but then there are two threats to it, and I think that is linked to equity. One threat is that people can become disillusioned from higher education and they stop taking admissions. Because if they know that the jobs are not going to come and if they know that the quality education is not going to be there, they are not likely to take admissions. So this is one possibility that we are staring up. And the one who will lose out in this process would be the one who come from the poorer section or the marginalized section of the uh, society. The second thing uh, that uh, could be a threat to achieving this objective would be that this idea of merging colleges, because the policy provides that these 45,000 colleges would be reduced to 15,000 colleges by upsizing them or by resizing them. And when they do that, I think the distance between home and the college would increase and that would lead to poorest section of the society from i mean deprived them from uh, raising uh, from accessing higher education because education away from home is far more expensive than education closer from their home so i think i just wanted to add this point to this yeah
0: thank you thank you process thank you thank you for the time and thank you for the valuable inputs thank you again thank
2: you very much thank you very much thank
0: you Bye bye